affecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org WJFF Jeffersonville This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard has a Star Talk report on viewing Mars and Jupiter after midnight for two hours in the eastern sky. Stephanie Phillips and archaeologist Dr. April M. Bayshaw report on the history of New York City's drinking water, sourced locally from the reservoirs and landscapes in the Catskills. This segment was made possible by the Time in the Valley Museum in Gramsville. All of that coming up on today's Farming Country. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. As the community in Uvalde, Texas, and the nation mourn 19 children and two teachers killed in the latest school shooting, outrage grows over the police response. Authorities now say the gunman was locked in a classroom with children for more than an hour Tuesday before authorities would enter and end it. NPR's Ping Huang reports from Uvalde. This is a community that's still in shock. People are heartbroken. They're grieving. Some are angry. Monique Rodriguez was one of the parents that was outside the school during the shooting, pleading with cops to enter the classroom. They were already there on the scene, and they could have prevented that. They could have prevented that, and they didn't, because they were too cowardly to do their job. The head of the Texas Department of Public Safety says the on-scene commander mistakenly believed the attack was over, leading to the delay. The NRA's annual convention is underway in Houston as angry protesters call for better controls on the purchase of assault weapons, like the one used in Uvalde. Former President Donald Trump addressed the event and called for a hardening of schools to avert future shootings. Upcoming primaries are being closely watched as tests of Trump's influence in races that oversee voting. As NPR's Miles Parks reports, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger beat a primary challenger this past week who denied the 2020 election results. Georgia's Republican voters rebuked the former president's election fraud claims in choosing Raffensperger, who has defended the integrity of the 2020 vote. In June, Republican voters in Nevada and Colorado will have similar decisions to make. In Nevada, Trump has endorsed former state legislator Jim Marchant, who says the 2020 election was stolen. And in Colorado, Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters is running for the state's top voting job. Peters has become something of a hero in election conspiracy circles for letting an unauthorized person into her elections office to investigate voting machines. She's facing numerous criminal charges related to that incident. The Nevada primary is June 14th, and Colorado is two weeks later on the 28th. Miles Parks, NPR News. Ukraine says their forces may need to retreat from the last territory they hold in the Luhansk region to avoid becoming encircled by Russian forces. The BBC's Joe Inwood reports. They don't expect some sort of imminent collapse by the Ukrainian forces there. They are very well fortified. And in the past... Russian troops have proved that they are not that adept at urban warfare. Around Kyiv, that was where they had their big first attempt at it, and they were roundly beaten. So we shouldn't look at this and think that 
the Ukrainians are in a dire situation, all is lost, but it is looking increasingly difficult, especially given the huge quantities of Russian artillery that they're bringing to bear. The BBC's Joe Inwood reporting. It's NPR News. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wallenpapak, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farming Country. Coming up on today's show, in the segment Now You Know, Stephanie Phillips and archaeologist Dr. April M. Bayshaw report on the history of New York City's drinking water sourced locally from the reservoirs and landscapes in the Catskills. This segment was made possible by Time in the Valley Museum in Gramsville. But first, here is Keith Hubbard with this week's Star Talk report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. For Farm and Country, I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. After midnight tonight, you will have the opportunity to view two planets in conjunction in the eastern sky. Mars will partner with Jupiter and will be just off the gas giant's lower right side. The duo will be close to each other, separated by a little more than the apparent diameter of the full moon. Mars and Jupiter will rise at 2.45 a.m. nearly due east. They will be the brightest objects in a fairly dark region of the sky, so there will be no mistaking stars for them. Jupiter will be at magnitude negative 2.3 and will be very bright white in color. Mars will be at magnitude 0.7 and will be reddish in color. Jupiter will be almost 16 times brighter than Mars. When looking for the planets, First, look for Jupiter, and then look to Jupiter's lower right-hand side to find the fainter Mars. Beginning around 3.45 a.m., the two planets should be high enough in the sky for most observers to easily spot them. This will leave you about one hour to view the conjunction. Though the sun will not rise until around 5.30 a.m., the glare from the sun will be bright enough by 4.45 a.m., wash out the planets. For two hours on Sunday morning between 2.45 and 4.45 a.m., you will be able to see the conjunction of Mars and Jupiter in the eastern sky. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. This is Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. We live in a watershed area for New York City. Very generous of us to share our water with the city, right? 
Dr. April M. Basaw, Associate Professor and Chair of the Anthropology Department of Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, has been studying how the city acquired and set up its 19 reservoirs, and maybe it's not all sweetness and light. She explained her findings in a webinar sponsored by the Time in the Valleys Museum in Gramsville. So I'm an archaeologist, which means that I'm approaching this New York City reservoir history in a way that is different from how a lot of people have looked at it before. I focus on the landscape and the stories that are held in that landscape and also groups of people instead of individuals. So I don't list names of politicians or lawyers or engineers, and I don't celebrate the volumes of land that has been moved and so forth. What I do is I go out in the field trying to find the ruins of the places, the homes, the businesses, the churches, the cemeteries that were lost to reservoir construction, both during the initial construction of the reservoir and through the maintenance of the water system over the last hundred years. So there's things being demolished today and places that are being encapsulated by New York City as their land and cut off from these communities. So I'm looking for change over time on the landscape through these sites and through the stories that are held there. We haven't looked at Roundout or Never Sink yet and the ruins that are there. I include locations of ruins of the water system outside the water take line. And these are on properties that New York City owns and runs as recreation land. So I do my research not just on what was demolished for the reservoir, but what keeps getting demolished, what keeps getting taken in order to protect the water for New York City. In Olive, you have the Ashokan Reservoir, which actually straddles the town of Olive and Hurley, but I'm only focusing on Olive. And in the town of Kent, you have the Boyd's Corner Reservoir. And both of these are part of this watershed system that flows into New York City. My overarching question for my research is, what are the long-term impacts of reservoir creation and maintenance? So, so not to keep you in suspense, here are some of my conclusions right from the beginning so that you could then see the evidence that I have for this and critique the evidence as we go along. In both the towns of Olive and the town of Kent, New York City became the majority landowner. And this seems independent of the size of the reservoir, whereas Kent's reservoir is only 1.7 billion gallons and Olive's is 123 billion gallons. The size of the reservoir has no impact on how much of the majority of the land the city has gained in both towns. The Boyd's Corner Reservoir went into service in 1873, the Ashokan in 1915, and it's independent of the distance from New York City, Boyd's Corner being 40 miles from the city at its closest point and the Ashokan being 75 miles at its closest point. Along with the city becoming the majority landowner in both towns, the economy of both towns changed. New York City and New York State instituted rules for water protection after the reservoirs went in, which redefined how the towns can be run. There was also a redirection of water, roads, and railroads that changed the economic potential of locations. And both of these changed the land values, which led to a change in the landowners. There are 19 reservoirs in the system. 
So the Boyd's Corner Reservoir is on the West Branch River in the town of Kent, Putnam County. Even though the Boyd's Corner Reservoir was going to go on the West Branch River, New York City was keenly interested in the water coming from White Pond. White Pond is a spring-fed pond that flowed through this community of farmers' mills, which included a variety of mills, including a whiskey distillery, blacksmith shops, some schools, and so forth. And then the water flowed down into what was going to become the Boyd's Corner Reservoir. Boyd's Corner started around 1867, the plan for it. But in 1864, there was a newspaper article about White Pond and Farmer's Mills that kind of foreshadowed what was about to happen. It said, Farmer's Mills is situated in the lap of several small hills on the northwest portion of the town of Kent and is a village of much notoriety. It has the most beautiful and healthy streams of water running through its center, known in the state of New York, capable of driving the machinery of any manufactory for which the water is used. And yet it is strange to say that its location has never been sought and obtained by capitalists of this go-ahead and prosperous county. So within four years, people did acquire White Pond and Farmer's Mills as part of creating the Boyd's Corner Reservoir. New York City acquired 420 acres for the Boyd's Corner Reservoir, and that by itself added 270 million gallons to the city's supply. But as soon as they did that, there was a drought in the region, and New York City was growing. So New York City said, it's not enough. So they started putting other Kent ponds into service and started shunting the Kent Pond water into the Boyd's Corner Reservoir. And then they acquired White Pond and Farmer's Mills. And the acquisition information describes the city's work to get these properties as a combination of condemnation, sale, and absorption, that they drove away residents and business owners because they prevented them from using the water or doing anything within any vicinity of the water. So it's not just the 420 acres it was this entire region that they started taking over to get their reservoir to be useful to them. In 1893, New York City was allowed to abate all nuisances, including the use of water in farmers' mills. They literally sent people to the town of Kent to stop people from doing things like having outhouses anywhere near the water having animals anywhere near the water. They forced people to be dug out of graves because they were near the water. And in 1899, the New York State Board of Health said that the city could eliminate all farms within 800 feet of a water body that flowed into the Boyd's Corner Reservoir. So pretty much every single building is within 800 feet of a water body. So within 50 years of creating the Boyd's Corner Reservoir, farming essentially became illegal in the town. Mildred Bailey was a blues singer who moved into the town of Kent, along with all of these other elite people who wanted to be near New York City, but wanted to have a country home. So as these farmers can no longer farm, their farms are condemned, the property values plummeted, and many elite people like Mildred Bailey and other people who worked in New York City purchased the land of Kent. 
and turn these farms into country estates. The same year that Mildred moved to Kent, she released this song, It's So Peaceful in the Country. It's so simple and quiet, you really ought to try it. And this is part of this movement that it was created that Kent is open for city residents to have this uh, rural homestead. Boyd's Corner Reservoir was really just a beginning of the city's influence on the town of Kent. This map shows those locations of the buildings from 1867, but the dark green is every property that is now owned and operated by New York City as a recreation property. There isn't much left in between that isn't a steeply sloped hill going up or a water body. So with all of this recreation land that New York City has purchased, a lot of it since 1990, to help protect the water that flows into the Boyd's Corner Reservoir, but also the top of the West Branch Reservoir that was built a few years after the Boyd's Corner Reservoir. New York City owns and operates 15% of Kent's town land as city recreation areas. This is 10 times the original land taking from 1867 to 2020 that the city has created their land use in the town of Kent. So as an archaeologist, I go to these city-owned recreation properties, the ones that are open for hiking, and I hike them with my students and sometimes with community members, and we look for the ruins of these farms and businesses that might remain on the landscape. And whereas in the past this was rolling meadow, this is now dense forest so a lot of people don't realize that there are ruins of farms in the woods, or they don't believe that these ruins in the woods are associated with farms because they believe the forest has always been there. So on this New York City distributed recreation map, they identified that there is a cemetery in the middle of their recreation unit. This is the first place that I brought students to when we started doing the archaeology of the New York City water system. And there's no obvious way to get there because there are no trails on these hiking recreational properties. The path that the students and I took to get to the cemetery, it was a very, very rough hike, lots of boulders on this very steep slope, and then we had to hike back out. The students who went with me that day never, ever went with me anywhere again. They were that exhausted from this hike to get to this cemetery. So when we got to the cemetery, we were surprised to see that a brand new marker had just gone up in the same year in 2012, identifying this as the Parker Farm Cemetery. Other farm associated things are on that unit, including a water pump, a brick, and one of these stone chambers that I'm gonna mention a little later that are uh, essentially root cellars that are always associated with farm structures with this one is next to that water pump. In the cemetery, we found the grave of Elsa Lee. And in the 1867 map, right next to the cemetery, it shows Mrs. Elsa Lee Parker's house, right? And you notice that there is no water body to the north of Mrs. Parker's house and cemetery. Whereas if I go back, you see this water body, Seven Hills Lake, that is also a man-made water body that was not there during the agricultural history of this area. 
And I'm in the middle of the foundation of Mrs. Parker's house with Jackie, who is a member of the Kent Historical Society. And we're talking about what it was like for the Lee and Robinson families to have lived on this property. A ceramic shirt of a jug is just one of the many artifacts that are there on the ground surface. So to bring you to the Kent Hills Recreation Unit that was all the way to the east in the town of Kent, this New York City distributed map doesn't show any reason why you would want to go there. There's no cemetery in the center. There's no hiking. It says you could fish on this property, but it's dry 90% of the time. There's no fish on this property. But throughout the Kent Hills Recreation Unit are very impressive, well-built stone walls in an elaborate setup with barbed wire and springs from gates. This was a dairy farm, a very extensive dairy farm that was owned by the Kent family of the town of Kent, David Kent's family. So we document the ruins of both of these farms, Elsa Parker's farm and David Kent's farm in the field, and then we compare it to the census records. So the 1860s census shows that Elsa Parker and David Kent were almost the same age, but David Kent had 10 times the value of real estate. And whereas Elsa had just three horses, six cows, four sheep, and six pigs, David Kent had seven horses, 80 cows, 30 sheep, and 18 pigs. The important thing here is it really didn't matter how wealthy or successful you were. Once New York City was taking the water from the town of Kent, both of these families lost their farms, and their farms are now city-owned properties with very little known about their histories. So the last Kent property I'm going to take you to is the Boyd's Corner South unit, and to get onto this property from the main road, it is a very steep slope that you have to climb up. The students and I got halfway up the slope recording farm elements the whole way, gates, stone walls, all sorts of artifacts that we got almost to the top. And I said, you know, it's lunchtime, but there's going to be a ruin of a mansion at the top of the hill. Do you want to go back down and have lunch or do you want to keep going to the top? And of course they said, let's go to the ruin of a mansion and eat lunch later. So we got to the top and we started seeing bricks again, which was leading us to the ruins of the 1906 Kidridge Mansion, which had 50 rooms in it, is at the top of the hill on this city-owned recreation property. Here are some steps associated with it and the rose garden that was behind the house that still blooms, even though this is considered virgin land and wilderness that have been untouched by human hands. There's a lovely landscaped rose garden there. So this property, before it had the Kitteridge Mansion on it in the 1860 census, was the farm of William Hopkins, who was a 41-year-old farmer, so younger than the Parker and Kent families. He was kind of in between them with $5,000 in real estate. In 1906, the Kitteridge family purchased this property after the Boyd's Corner Reservoir had been put in and it could no longer be used as a farm, and they were winemakers. So they built this 50-room mansion. They had servants. But in the 1920s, they sold their mansion, and it became the Carmel Country Club. There's a 1928 New York Times article about the country club and other properties in Kent being turned into resorts and country clubs 
for more wealthy people. And in that New York Times article, they called this property virgin forest that was carefully and scientifically preserved when it's actually remnants of William Hopkins farm and has also the remnants of this Kitteridge family's country estate on it. So there's nothing virgin forest about this land. So to kind of summarize up Boyd's Corner Reservoir, in 1867, New York City acquires 400 acres of land to build one reservoir. By 2019, New York City has that, but they also have 4,000 acres of Kent land that is owned and controlled by New York City. Through this condemnation of farming across the town, there's an almost total replacement of the original population. And that has led to a lot of mythology about these ruins that people are sure that these can't be farms. This is a New York Times article from April 22nd of 2001 that says, in fact, this chamber, the stone chambers like the one on Elsa Parker's property, tucked away in the woods of Putnam County, resembles the Neolithic stone monuments of the ancient Celts. So do the roughly 100 similar stone chambers in Putnam. So there's such a disconnect from the farm history to the forests and reservoirs that are there today that even the New York Times helps to propagate the idea that these are from a lost civilization instead of from the communities who lost their properties to the New York City reservoir system. So thanks to Dr. April M. Basaw of Vassar College, now you know that New York City almost obliterated the town of Kent when it created its watershed system. To hear the whole lecture, go to the Time in the Valley's channel on YouTube. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. On today's show, Farming Country features the music of Steve Jacoby. Steve is one of the singer-songwriter musicians of the Upper Delaware Collective. They will be performing at the Drive-In Music Concert, featuring four bands on a mobile, rotating stage. Save the date, Saturday, June 18th, from 6 to 9 p.m., outdoors at the Union in Narrowsburg, New York. Sit outside by the fire pit, bring a picnic dinner, and enjoy the music of Poison Love, Brewster Smith, Cliff Westfall, and the Tomb Keepers. Saturday, June 18th, 6 to 9 p.m., outdoors at the Union in Narrowsburg, New York.
Saturday, June 4th, at the Tustin parking lot, 198 Bridge Street, the Narrowsburg Beautification Group, sponsored by the Sullivan Renaissance, will hold their spring plant swap. Exchange plants, seeds, and bulbs with your neighbors. Nothing to exchange? Make a donation instead. Saturday, June 4th, at the Tustin parking lot, 198 Bridge Street in Narrowsburg, New York. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest, archaeologist Dr. April M. Bashaw, Associate Professor at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farming Country on Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org On this week's On the Media, we don't know how long antibodies from vaccination or infection can protect us from COVID, but try thinking about it like this. Just because I walk past a restaurant at 1 a.m. and I don't see the kitchen,